Hello and welcome. You're hearing the final talk in this series of studies in the Gospel of Mark today on Search for Truth. This is your Bible study programme with Bible teacher Brian Johnston. So I'm delighted you can join us, so thank you. Chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel is a chapter to approach with due reverence and awe as Mark recounts what happened when Jesus' time had come and he finally fulfilled what was written about him beforehand in all the scriptures. So listen carefully to Brian and the events recorded in Mark chapter 16 and follow in your own Bible if you wish. The title of Brian's talk today is The Most Important Press Release in history and its sensational news. So here's Brian. Yes, thanks John. Someone rising from the dead was a phenomenon just as unthinkable to the minds of Jesus' first followers as it seems to ours today. Don't assume naive earliest followers of Christ superstitiously nodded through the story of Jesus' claimed resurrection. But eventually, even the most hesitant among them did find the resurrected Christ a reality that they simply couldn't deny. And they went to their deaths talking about it, spreading the news around the world for 2,000 years. Skeptics say they'll only believe a miracle if the alternative is even more unbelievable. By the skeptic's own test, the resurrection is the lesser miracle of the two and the one to be believed. The alternative is that these early devotees were hoaxing it and doing it entirely consistently for decades. And ultimately they, pretty much all of that core group, were prepared to give their lives for something they allegedly knew was only a lie. That's harder to believe, is it not? Take the testimony of Chuck Colson on that point. Chuck Colson was someone who pled guilty to a single charge of obstructing justice in return for telling all he knew about Watergate. Remember, Watergate was a major political scandal that occurred in the United States in the 1970s following a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., President Richard Nixon's administration attempted cover-up of its involvement. When this was investigated by the US Congress, their resistance led to a constitutional crisis. That was when Chuck Colson, who was embroiled in this conspiracy, accepted a plea bargain. Later he said, I know the resurrection is a fact. Watergate proved it to me. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Let's now look at some of the facts as Mark lays them out. Verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, And summoning the centurion, he questioned him 
as to whether he was already dead, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that it might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Thanks to Pilate checking the fact, we know Jesus was certified dead. That rules out the theory that tries to maintain Jesus had only swooned. Last time, we saw how Mark kept repeating references to Jesus as King of the Jews. In this final section under consideration, it now seems as if he's deliberately repeating the identities of these three women. Now, why would he do that? It should make us think. For one thing, the unusual feature of duplicate listing of names in adjacent verses assures us that the women who saw the body placed in the tomb were the exact same women who returned to anoint it. Mark wants us to be sure there could have been no miscommunication about which tomb was the correct one to return to, for the very same women were involved, so the wrong tomb theory is hopeless. By the way, there's surely another reason why the women were the first witnesses. In the first century, the testimony of women wasn't counted as credible. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, writes, But let not the testimony of women be admitted, on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, since it's probable that they may not speak truth, either out of hope of gain or out of fear of punishment. No man in the first century would give credence to a woman's testimony. Given that a woman's testimony was not credible, why would the gospel writers report them as witnesses, indeed as the primary witnesses for the resurrection? Wouldn't it have made more sense to offer some more credible male testimony? Anglican priest and physicist John Polkinghorn answers this question with a resounding no. He writes, Perhaps the strongest reason of taking the stories of the empty tomb absolutely seriously lies in the fact that it is women who play the leading role. It would have been very unlikely for anyone in the ancient world who was concocting a story to assign the principal part to women, since in those times they were not considered capable of being reliable witnesses in a court of law. It is surely much more probable that they appear in the Gospel accounts precisely because they actually fulfilled the role that the stories assigned to them, and in so doing, they make a startling discovery. Let's come to Mark chapter 16, verse 3. They were saying to one another, that's those women, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. This also, by the way, emphasises multiple witnesses who describe finding the unexpected. Out with the theory that says they were merely hallucinating, seeing only what they wanted to see. Verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, 
Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Tell Peter, what an authentic touch that is, relayed on behalf of someone who'd never break a crushed reed. And Peter was no doubt feeling crushed by his denials. Then again, the mention of Galilee affirms exactly what the Lord himself had promised when predicting the scattering of his disciples. Now let's continue the actual narrative with Mark. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. Another dinner party, didn't you notice? Albeit, it must have been a very solemn one. It was another case of reclining at table. But this would turn out to be the best occasion of all, for Jesus appeared to them alive and well. And here's another touch of authenticity. They include the fact that he reproached them for their lack of faith. Probably the most influential British philosopher of religion of the last half century is longtime Oxford professor Richard Swinburne. In 2003, he published a book entitled The Resurrection of God Incarnate, and in it he concludes that on the available evidence today, it is 97% probable that Jesus truly, miraculously rose from the dead, proving that he is the God he claimed to be. Isn't it interesting that God should be alive and well in university philosophy departments of all places? Historians and lawyers have gone on record as stating that the resurrection of Jesus is the best attested fact in all of history. The Apostle Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection in Acts 17 verse 18. Why that emphasis? Because he taught in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then the Christian faith is vain. The case for Christianity stands or falls on the objective reality of whether or not Christ was raised. Christianity cannot be of moderate importance. It is either of no importance, if Christ was not raised, or it is all important, as Christ was indeed raised. The most important and personal question is, what is your response? Will it be like Andy Stanley's response? He said, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just go with whatever that man says. Or will it be like Eugene Peterson's response? He says, the Bible is not a script for a funeral service, but it is the record of God always bringing life where we expected to find death.
as usual, I remind you there's a book which contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series. And it's available simply by asking, and you ask for the title, Take Your Marks Gospel. You can do this by email or by post, and here's our postal address first. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have for today, except to say thank you once more for your company. And if you've been following this series and enjoyed it, please let me know. And if you didn't, please tell me why. If you can join us again next week for the start of a new series, I'd be very happy. Until then, it's cheerio and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers, and me, John. So, cheerio, and may God richly bless you. Crown him.